Hello and good evening, folks. Welcome to the very first episode of The Virtual World, a podcast about software, technology, VR, inclusivity, and love. I'm your host and software engineer, Ty. For this episode, I invited my favorite coworker of all time, Ben McMean, to have a conversation with me. He was the tech lead on a project I was on for over three years. On this first episode, we will cover a bit of our own experiences in the field, the issues with the elitist mentality in software engineering, and some current events. Please enjoy. Cool. All right. So it is uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on June 23rd, 2020. And I'm sitting here with an old coworker, Ben McMean, who still to this day is the best tech lead that I've worked with. And uh, I'm really glad to be sitting here with you, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks, thanks for that really warm welcome to you. I, uh, you need to work with more tech leads if I'm the best. <laughs> yeah. My, my issue with te- tech leads usually isn't the fact that they're not capable of doing good work. It's that they're pretentious dicks. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely that part of it. I mean, well, and you know how it is too. I mean, a lot of, you know, quote unquote architects are like that. Uh, I kind of, I kind of live in that gray area of a lot of projects where, you know, a lot of architects somehow have spent 10 years, not actually really that close to new technology, but they have really strong opinions about, you know, a design pattern and an obscure part of some task that you made the mistake of involving them in. And, uh, you know, they're more, diplomats in a corporate setting sometimes as opposed to a software architect right like or a infrastructure architect or somebody who actually needs to get something from point a to point b so um, yeah for sure so yeah, i mean we, I know exactly. we were both we were on the same project when uh, we were when we had elastic search as our entire relational database shoved down our throat <laughs> you're gonna laugh but I'm, I'm actually i'm actually working with some systems right now where they're doing that um they're trying to treat elastic search like a document uh, basically a document DB and you know, it's in the early stages and you know, it's a backend system that, that my current system integrates with or aggregates stuff with. And uh, yeah, they haven't felt the pain yet. I, I keep trying to tell them, you know, but uh, they have they just haven't got there yet. Right. Because they, they only have one index. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, uh, I'm, I'm working on something a little bit similar where they, I just went through this really massive PR uh, and actually wrapped it up today to integrate with DocumentDB specifically. Um, and that was an upgrade from, they were using just S3 storage buckets to store yep. JSON documents. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, yeah, I, that, was a, that, was, that was a big thing for a while. And actually, it's probably not a bad approach, right? I mean, especially when you got some CDN stuff and it's high read, you know, for, to a certain point. Right? It's actually not bad. Really, the retrieval speed is where it, it kind of is the worst. Like if you've yeah. got, if you've got an indexing system where you can just point the front end at like a public URL for this thing, that's fine. But if you're instead, if you've got an API and the API is then trying to programmatically grab data from that bucket and send it back, it's just like the overhead is insane. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I would definitely see that. You know, it's probably not a bad thing if you're on a shoestring budget and that's kind of how you want to do a POC and that translates, it'll, you know, you kind of take that same pattern and scale it up to what, what it sounds like you did, you know, a real database where, give you some AWS stuff like Glue to start going through those things, you know. Yeah, I think it actually, it, it I wouldn't say it's the best option in the world, but honestly, as far as a proof of concept and and then replacing that layer later, it actually worked out really well. So I can't yeah. fault them too much. I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback onto that. And this is the case of the craziest thing that I, I've seen as an approach with S3 lately. Okay, so I've got this thing and it's actually using AWS step functions, which is pretty cool. 
Um, we may eventually leave step functions for this project if it, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of using them in a, a little bit of non-traditional way, but you know, when you're stringing together lambdas, you could also just invoke, you could, you could have another layer to orchestrate them if you wanted to, right? But anyway, step functions that we're doing, it's, it's almost like uh, kind of a sausage grinder of processing of some, some data, you know, that's very API centric, right? And it kind of calls to some backend systems, it does some stuff, it's got to aggregate some stuff, it needs to transform some stuff, it needs to do, I don't know, some validation, some, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And then eventually, puts this thing out there into an API response. The, the problem with that is, is when you're, when you're doing lambdas like that, you know, they have a pretty, they have kind of a limited input and output. So the whole thing is based on inputs and outputs and the lambdas talk to each other through that. And the state machine and step functions orchestrates that input and output. It can transform it, it can make some decisions, like very small decisions based on the input to do another logic tree or whatever. Pretty small, pretty small though. You only have, I think, like 256 uh, kilobytes you can throw into an input. Well, you know, eventually you're gonna get to a web response where that may be bigger, right? So there's a bunch of people doing a bunch of stuff to get around that, right? So one of the craziest things that you can do is you can actually have these step functions uh, output instead of, um, you know, directly to the Lambda, you can just have the output go to S3, and then the next lambda picks up that input. So that's how, that's how some people are dealing with that. So you can imagine it's like you've got this function, it takes a little bit of input, it produces some output, and then some decisions are made. Well, that's all being curried around inside of S3 buckets in that model, which is bananas if you think about it. That's pretty wild. Is it like a lot of data, though? I mean, I guess you couldn't use something like a message queue to get that back and forth. Yeah, well, eventually that's kind of where we went. Like, we actually kind of ended up doing a pub sub stuff. Like, the queuing system would be totally cool. Like I said, ours is a little different because we're actually kind of using it in a, in a synchronous way as opposed to like you know, like asynchronous call to this the state machine. So, so we do sort of a queuing sockets thing to get everything where it's got to go at the end of the day. But yeah, that's exactly what you, you end up doing is you end up kind of you can also have that output as a you know an SQS or an SNS queue. I think you do both. You can do either one of those queues, you can have those these inputs and outputs be that as well, which is pretty cool. But I can only, you know, and most of these people, they're, doing, they're, they're calling this asynchronously, they're doing some data processing, S3 makes sense, because they don't really care when it comes back, and it needs to come back in a timely fashion, but it's a little different than what we're doing, which is, I'm gonna make this web request, I'm gonna invoke a step function, and eventually I'm going to block until I get back a response. So it's a little bit of an anti-pattern what we're doing. That's, that's all we may get away from it. But, you know, all that's to say is there, you know, people are, you know, squirreling away their inputs and outputs to these functions in S3, which I probably, and people are actually doing it. It's like, this is weird, but anyway. Yeah, um, so uh, that sounds kind of crazy. Honestly, the, the S3 stuff is pretty nuts. Um, I mean, nowadays they have everything. They just released this thing yesterday. Did you did you read about it? It's called like Moxie or some shit. Mm -mm, no. Yeah. So they created this service where you can pay them a couple dollars a month, and they'll like monitor the dark web for like all of your information and make sure that none of your information is getting put out there. And they will actually like they use machine learning and stuff to track all of your all of your data and and make sure you're not posted anywhere. And then they'll just they'll quash it. They'll find it and they'll deal with it. Somehow. What do you mean? So, like, so, like, so they're looking at the stuff inside of your your account and like kind of balancing that against 
things out there in the dark web like that was my impression of it um i didn't actually uh i didn't actually get a chance to read the full thing but i read the little excerpt and and whether or not i'm wrong i couldn't say but my takeaway like leaving it and I, my belief currently is that yeah basically you just you set up I imagine you'd go into a dashboard and be like, you know, this is my social security number. Here are the, here are my email addresses that are important. And it just kind of monitors those and lets you know, like, hey, all of your stuff is, these are the places where you can find your information on the internet. That's kind of cool. I would probably do that unless they, unless they, <laughs> yeah, unless they were like the bad actors. Like, you know. I mean, I, if that's the case, I feel like right now, like for the next couple of weeks, there's going to be maybe a couple thousand people that are like, oh man, I got to get this website going where people can put in their information and then I just piggyback <laughs> off of this service. <laughs> right. Like Moxie charges you 99 cents a, a month or something for uh, for a, one particular set of data. So you just charge them 20 bucks a month or whatever. Yeah. It's kind of like that whole uh, Facebook, uh, you know, face app or whatever, where they're just giving up all their, giving up all their face. Before we get into the, the more personal stuff, um, let's, so recently I've been working on a little side project for myself. I actually got a company started. I finally got an LLC. Um, nice. I'm not really sure what that means for me going forward yet. Um, I thought about doing some contracting or, you know, doing some you know, like small projects for small businesses and things like that. Maybe even getting into WordPress or something. I don't know. Something that has a, a really quick turnaround time. Yeah. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but as of right now, basically, I mean, I think it's basically just going to be the podcast and I've got this app I'm working on. And so that's, that's where I was really going with this. Uh, I've been working on this app and I've been using Angular and I, I really just hate it. You know, it's one of those things where I thought that if I really gave it a chance and like dove in and, and like understood the meat and potatoes that I would start to see the light and be like, oh yeah, totally. This is how web development should be done. But I just, uh, I don't see it. Yeah. So like, I'm, I'm of two minds, right? about myself <laughs> so you know one i know there'll be something else down the line and i also know that i'm not the sharpest tool in the drawer um and i tend to kind of gravitate things toward i mean like everybody does right i, I gravitate towards things i like um and simplicity i think yeah i, I yeah totally I, I i tend to i want to get something started very simple and understand like the core everything of it, right yeah it's just I, I want to feel like i have a bedrock of knowledge and I I've never felt that way with Angular. I'm, I'm I mean, it's it's it, I'm willing to be of two minds of it. I could have a blind spot that it's awesome and it's maybe just not for me. And that's the nice thing I can say about it. And I could also say having tried to use it several times now, I just kind of hate it. You know, I think it's garbage. And, and that's a that's a good way to put it too because. I, I felt that way about Angular, and I, I really am giving it a shot. Mainly, I'm giving it a shot for the purpose of using Ionic, and that's because mm -hmm. I'm trying to get out there on the mobile market and yeah. not have to recreate it, you know? Um, so that's a really great benefit, but, I mean, also there's things like Flutter and whatnot nowadays, so there are more options, and I honestly may end up going that way. And why not React Native? Like, I'm just curious, like, React Native wasn't really, a, you didn't feel like, you know, that would go anyplace for you, or? Well, so I, I used Svelte a couple months ago for a couple of little projects, and there are things wrong with it. Don't get me wrong. I don't I don't love everything about it, especially they have this companion app that's like Next.js or Nux.js called Sapper, but it's for Svelte. And first of all, I fucking hate that name, Svelte. It's just the worst name, I think. Yeah, I kind of hate all of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> all of them. The names, the names are just really bad. But I, I gave Sapper a shot, and um, I hate Sapper for various reasons. We don't have to go into that, but I love Svelte 
even with its flaws, I think it's it's by far the best way to do web development, and it's got some really awesome features. And so because of that, I just have this really bad taste in my mouth about JSX now because Svelte has shown me this world where web development is possible with literally just HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and really nothing else. And I feel like with, with JSX, you're like you're choosing to add this extra layer of indirection. Yeah, it's definitely. I'm looking at it now. Yeah, I've never, I've never heard of this. I'm, I'm checking it out here. It uses compilation to automatically handle uh, DOM updates for you inside of the code. So instead of having a library that does like shadow DOM or virtual DOM or something and, and like tracks the changes that need to happen to the DOM and then does them for you, it eliminates that entire process of tracking by just having like, de it generates declarative code that just knows, okay, this thing changed. I'm now going to update this in the DOM. And it's like very surgical in that way. And it's really okay. cool because they also use observables and stuff just like just like Angular. But something about it, it's just magical in comparison because you you can use this dollar sign notation thing that they've got going on and it handles like auto subscribing to the to the values. So I, I don't know. There's just something about it that just feels like it might not be the thing, but it's certainly, a, in my opinion, and for the way that I think about development, it's definitely a stepping stone in the right direction. Yeah, how, how's their approach to observable? Is it, is it less painful than Angular? Oh, way man? less painful. Way less painful. I don't know what it is. Like, I when I used Svelte and I was using observables all over the place, I just it just clicked and I was just doing it and it worked correctly and I didn't really have to think about it. It became a background detail, you know what I mean? Like, even less important than CSS. I was thinking more about my CSS than how I was handling state or using observables or any of that. And now I've built this app using Ionic and I mean, I've been what developing for 10 years or something, and I'm not saying I'm an expert and I'm certainly new to observables, but I just find myself beating my head against the wall with these damn observables every day. Oh, I just, yeah, yeah and I, all the people that are all about observables and Angular, it's like, I, I don't know, man. It, it just feels like they've got Stockholm syndrome about it. I mean, there's, it's just, it's, it's such a heavy layer for, to me, something, I want to have less to read in my web app. Absolutely. But of course, you know me, I'm, I'm more focused on the, API and the infrastructure part these days, but I do I do like you know a lot of stuff that reacts to for smaller things like you know their you know the the other hooks and some of their set state stuff there it takes a lot of the pain that you know people are experiencing with Redux and, and stuff like that. But I, I felt like even Redux with all the boilerplate and all the crap that came along with that and all the you know kind of sort of gross things you did with I feel like Backbone for a minute, like right before, right around the time that AngularJS was popular, like started getting popular. I feel like Backbone was kind of doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And and there, of course, there were all these people that were like 
shoving Ember JS down my throat at the job that I worked at at the time, although we weren't using it at, at the job. They were like ranting and raving about it for their side projects and all this stuff. And and I just, I for some reason, I could never get into it. Yeah. I think I think Angular's biggest mistake for me was, um, you know, when they did Angular 2 or whatever, it was a dumpster fire for like a year and a half, right? So a lot of us just lost interest and moved on to React or something else, right? Anything. Because Angular 2, it was just, it was terrible. And they kind of were still pushing Dart, which never made a lot of sense to me. And you had to learn type. And they're back to that, that nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's whatever. They can have it. They really can. I mean, that's that's what other thing people don't realize. Like, if you can, if you use anything that's Google oriented, I mean, there is a sea of dead bodies you step over. They're like that with their Java stuff. They're like that. I, I sound like I'm trashing Google, but you don't have to think too hard to think of all the abandoned projects that Google has. They do great stuff. Smartest guys in the world, probably. But you always feel like that whatever they're pushing out there, it was some pet project of somebody at Google at some time, and somehow it just kind of floated its way to the top, and everybody's like, we're going to run this direction for a while. And then they do something crazy, they both say, hey, <laughs> this has been out for a while, like Angular, so we're going to come out with Angular 2. And it does the, the developer a huge disservice because it's basically a complete refactor rewrite. And you know what? People that pay us to do things and people that need things from us in a timely fashion, when they hear the word two, or hear the word two, they just think you're going to right click, upgrade that library, get about your day. And instead, you have to convince your customer or your client or whoever to let you spend a bunch of time and money to get exactly where they already are. They don't care what's built. I have a really relevant story about that. Actually, when I left Semantic Bits, we were in the middle of rewriting that fucking project in Angular 2. And it was wild because just like you said, you know, we're in the middle of this government contract. It's not like we can just say, hey, guys, we need two months to just do this right. Um, and actually, I mean, really, if you think about the amount of business value that Google cost the world by doing that, um, it, it's half and half, right? It's, it's half like, man, looking at it, wow, developers are kind of sheep. And that's why it's really interesting too that you've got this, they've got this like ego about how difficult their jobs are and how like and there's this elitism to the average developer, which is, it's really funny because they make fairly poor decisions when it comes to like, you know, when you look at it from a high level, myself included. And everybody that got their business really hype about AngularJS, I mean, how much money did they cost their business in the end? I, every business that I've seen that used AngularJS has now paid the price. Yeah, that's and I, well, you can say the same thing about the same businesses that you know also used a real shitty framework called GWT, right? And I think you probably have some exposure to it too. You know, GWT two was the same thing. Um, I was unfortunate enough to be involved in a GWT project, which I was a web guy. I've been a web guy for since the web, or I shouldn't say that, but since the since the commercial web and since you know nineties web, right? And I could not understand why there were still people on the planet that were basically swing developers who just needed a way to, you know, puke out web pages <laughs> without learning that stuff. And uh, that was GWT. Uh, and when they came out GWT two, well, guess what? You get to learn Dart. You get to not, you know, reuse any of your code. I guess except for maybe some Java classes. So, but uh, it's got a two tacked onto the end. So your business is like this should be a couple of days. 
What do you mean exactly. it's going to take you, you know? And actually, so with semantic bits, the way that it worked, man, it it's fucking crazy. Uh, I, I don't envy them really at all because it's not it's not an Angular JS app. It's not a Angular 2 app. It is a hybrid. Like with it's an Angular... I don't, I can't even remember how we had it set up, but it's, ba I think it's, it's either one or the other. It's either an AngularJS app that somehow is interfacing with Angular 2, or it's an Angular 2 app that is somehow interfacing with AngularJS. But like 90% yeah. of the code base is AngularJS, and the new stuff is Angular 2, and like they have to do all this work to communicate between them because they can't get the business to give them enough time to actually do it. Well, right. I mean, and so there's this thing called Norwal. Um, the yeah, I've been using group. Norwal, actually. Yeah. So they had this idea where you could run one. I can't remember which way it went. I looked at it once because it, you know, it was kind of like the only upgrade path. Ironically, that same group also, also offered upgrade consulting, which, you know. But it was like you ran kind of Angular inside of an Angular 2 kind of sandbox. And then you basically pull over your controllers and stuff. The weird thing is, is like, so for that particular project you're talking about, right? Like, um, I think the original boilerplate, you know, ch initial check-in, right? Like, you know, to say, hey, we got a repo and this is Sprint Zero. It, it was in Angular 2. And uh, they actually, this is when, okay, I, the writing's on the wall. Angular 2 is going to be the thing if you're an Angular developer. They didn't like React for some reason, so I was like, a, it was like a weird sort of step back for me to like get into the Angular world. And they they were like, ah, we can't, we're not going to do Angular two. We don't, we don't have time this sprint. You know, it was like, well, now's the sprint. Then you'll never so, have time. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times they 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 directly said to me though. They were like, yeah, I wish we'd taken your advice. But at the same time, okay, so at the same time too, we had I remember we had had this pretty disappointing call about. You know, it's like a, it was like a month into the project, which you know, a month for you know that company, they deliver a lot for a month to their credit, right? It's almost like the customer doesn't even know. You know, they just kind of think they're ramping up. They're used to slower contractors, and you know, Sprint Zero, Sprint One. I mean, that company will have, you know, they won't have an AWS environment just due to that onboarding. They'll have their own AWS environment they're using in the meantime they will have full on cicd they'll have 100 test coverage they will have a code base for both server and client i mean like they deliver a lot early to make sure that that relationship is cemented into a pace and a pattern I mean, like, to, to their credit I mean, better than anybody else i've ever worked for um in a lot of ways most ways and you know so but we had just had this nasty dust up you know where we were, well, I'm trying to think, I can't remember if we were trying to convert, I was trying to convince them to use Node for the microservices layer instead of, uh, I think some sort of weird Ruby. Remember that Ruby, yeah, Ruby thing? Yeah, it was Ruby, yeah. Yeah, and then we, I also knew too, we, we knew we were gonna hate the database. Well, I mean, we knew it, right? But it, it was literally like, they felt like they'd have egg on their face if they deviated too far from the, the technologies they had identified in the early stages of the RFP. But again, like you and I both know, customer doesn't care. Customer doesn't care if it's built in freaking Fortran. They don't care. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's like, w without a doubt, if you are somebody who is leading a project or is on the business team for a big project and you're listening to this, like, please, please choose your developers over the egg on your face. Lie if you have to. 
I don't care what you have to do. Just don't mention it to the customer whatsoever. But if they come to you and say something like that database is not going to work, especially the database or something like that, listen to them. If it's the beginning of the project, let them make the right decision because I mean, how much time did they lose on us just dealing with Elasticsearch indexes and then migrating the database later? And then we had this weird hybrid. I mean, they had to lose tens, tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, it's just time. And I mean, you know, fail fail early, right? And, and fix fix early. It's always more expensive. I'm I'm actually doing architecture for a project now. I was, you know, like I'm doing architecture on it, um, but it's it's kind of interesting because it's like I I just do kind of what I've always done, right? Like, which is I do a lot of CICD stuff. I do a lot of AWS things. Um, I do a lot of developer. Like, I'm really big on, like, I want to make developers' lives easy. So it's like, I want to, you know, if I can create some tools to empower them, to help them do their job, or if I can remove some complexity so they don't have to worry about it, or if I can help them standardize on some stuff, or even do documentation, like, I'm all about that. Like, I want to let good developers you know, do good development. So I'm, I'm like, I'm like doing architecture in a project where it's, it's all Python. And, uh, you know, I mean, I can sort of maybe read it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but you know, the, the same principles apply, right? Like, you know, we're going to build things always in a certain way. We're going to try to have this level of test coverage. We're going to you know, do CICD, you know, we're going to, we're going to try to all be, you know, holding hands together about how we format these things. And, you know, we can discuss that. Let's, you know, duke it out. But let's all, let's all have stake in the decisions we're making. But I mean, I literally, I know what this stuff does. And I even kind of know from a business perspective, some things that, you know, they have to think about for some of their stories, but man, I'm, I'm not trying to look at a lot of that code. You know, so I, I don't care what it's built in. I really don't like, you know, the, the majority of these developers are Python developers. They're very competent. You know, I trust them, and I actually had to kind of fight somebody who, not fight physically, because he would have lost, but, uh, like, you know, I had to fight somebody about, they just made this random kind of dust up, you know, some high-level architect made some, you know, well, we should be building everything in Go. Now, now mind you, there's no other projects in this enterprise in Go. Um, there's some Java. There's some Node. I don't, and I'm like, guys, look, like, I mean, I love TypeScript. I love JavaScript. I love some other things. I don't love some other things, you know, but at the end of the day, like, you know, I had to go to bat for a bunch of Python developers to keep developing Python. <laughs> so, you know, that people should use what gets it done, you know, um, especially when you're doing lambdas and stuff. I mean, hell, you can write them in anything. Like if you, you could write one in this and one in that, right? If, if that's what you want to do, and if that's what your team does to to get you know get the product out the door, and this project has a very short timeline with a lot of money on the line if it isn't done. <laughs> so yeah, and I think especially if you're looking at if you're looking at it from the perspective of the business and the business value, I would rather a couple of people have to learn Python, which is like the world's easiest language to learn, uh, versus. Uh, a bunch of people having to learn Go because this team dissolved, but we now we've got all these lambdas written in Go, and we have to support them. So you know you're onboarding people into a new language, a new ecosystem, and all of a sudden the next deployment doesn't work because they're not quite familiar with the environment stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a lot of drawbacks mm. to something like that. Well, it's also you know 
you've, you've been around the block long enough to know that a lot of times those decisions are made by people with like absolutely zero skin in the game, you know, in the day to day. And I'm not saying those people are useless or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, the distrust, the uh, anxiety, and the uh, you know the lack of confidence that that breeds into a team it sucks, right? It totally derails a project, right? And when that starts. You know, you've been on teams that are like this too, I'm sure. You know, once that slide starts, it's it's almost impossible to get back. You know, you you know, things things, you know, things that start weird, they stay weird and they end real weird, you know. Yeah, I may be going through a tad bit of that myself uh right now, but that's another story for another time. Um okay, let's get into some of the oh, oh, really quick. This was one of the interesting takeaways from this project I've been working on. And this is something I've been doing in my free time. So I've been doing Angular in the front end. And at some point we mentioned, you know, the, the heaviness of the observables and, and all of that stuff and the infrastructure and the state management. Um, I was really struggling with observables for something simple. Like, okay, I don't have a user. I'm going to hit this API. Now I have user data from a token. Like I put that into the into the value and like, you know, this, the rest of the app should know about this stuff now and update itself and like, Getting that to work properly was such a pain in the ass that I was I was thinking, okay, maybe I'm just using this stuff really wrong, and I need I need a little bit more structure. So then I start looking into how can I how can I go about adding more structure. I eventually end up at NGRX. I start reading through the the documentation, and I'm like, Jesus. Yeah, let let let, let NGRX mansplain to you what how your app should work. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my goodness. It's like, well, it, my my first thought is whenever I read their stuff, it's like, well, how dare you do what you described? How dare you update a piece of, of the, the UI with the person's username after they log in? Like, don't you understand that users today want, you know, these? Yeah, it's really we're, bad. We're going to get flamed by the NGR community. Oh, yeah, 100 million percent. And that's fine. That's okay. We don't like them either. At least I don't. I won't put words in your mouth, but they can go fuck themselves. I don't know. But the uh yeah it's funny um the ngrx stuff is just so incredibly heavy like incredibly heavy and especially coming off the back of having used spelt for a couple of months and, and i can hear the people now saying but how big was the project it spelt won't work for enterprise applications i'm not building an enterprise application does your browser work <laughs> yeah right i don't know why I mean, it's just talk about this what 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 is an enterprise application have to do with how a library manages development. I don't, Absolutely. I don't, I mean, what do these people think this thing's doing? We're, I mean, they're not developing client server applications. I mean, they're literally developing something that runs in a web Yeah, and getting to that before I keep forgetting, um, you know, I decided to give Angular a try. And there's also this... Uh, I didn't really want to use serverless just for my own project because I had done some number crunching and I'm just trying to be kind of frugal about it. And I had, I had realized like, you know, I could probably support, you know, a hundred thousand users with one server if I really needed to with this particular thing. And uh, so I decided to use this library called Nest.js for yeah. the backend. And it's basically Angular. Like it's, it's very heavily influenced by Angular. It uses annotations for everything. It's got modules. It's very similar. But like for the back end, it works. It makes a lot of sense. When I'm doing it, 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 like it just kind of things fall into place. And um, 
like that amount of structure and the heaviness that comes with it, I think makes a lot of sense on the back end. But with a client application, it's literally buttons. You know what I mean? Like you don't need, you don't need this enterprise level piece. Like you don't need AutoCAD to create buttons for people to click and inputs. You know what I'm saying? And I think what people care most about is how it looks and how it feels to use and not how complex it is. And so uh, it's interesting because I just, the more I use it, the more I absolutely hate Angular with a passion. But if you take that model and apply it to the back end, I really love it. So it's not the model itself. It's something about it being applied to this client side. And it just I doesn't work. I agree. Me. I agree wholeheartedly. I am floored. Well, I mean, I, I'm on some, well, I was on some projects. Well, first of all, I checked out early. I was like, man, these people are some. Angular experts, they're at the top of their game. Most of the, what they're talking about, I I don't I don't have the time to understand. Like I have other things I need to focus on. Um, and these guys sound smart. I was, I was amazed at how unreadable the code was just because it was so just it was a little esoteric. Um, but it, it worked really well. I was just amazed at how much of it there was. And I was just like, man, this is crazy. This app doesn't do that much. I mean, we're we really got like, I mean, I'm gonna say some old man stuff. I felt like we had about 10 pages slash views, right? And then there's some complexity components inside of there. And then of course you gotta think about you know different screen sizes and things like that. And that's that's you know not to be underestimated. But man, the amount of code we had to throw at it, it was like a whole application. No, it is an application. I'm not I'm not belittling from front end work at all. I mean, I'm really not. But uh, it was bigger than many server side projects I've worked on in terms of uh, just lines of code, files, uh, project directory structure. It was just like yeah. I mean, if you look at NGRX and Redux, they they support that style of verbosity where it's like, okay, you're gonna add a a new type of data model to your front end, or just like a new okay, you're adding books to your library website okay you need to add seven files you know you've got to have your actions your reducers your selectors you've got to have a data model data model for all of that not to mention you need you need a new module like it's just ridiculous the amount of plumbing that there is to just say i have an array of books yep yeah no I, i'm there with you man but like you said earlier, it's not it's not like I'm closed-minded about everything that I think I don't like because for a while there I was like, man, TypeScript is dumb. And now that I've used it in production for a while, like I'm yeah. I'm in love with it. Yeah, I love it. I, I love it especially for dependencies and stuff. You know, I mean, um, we had a, a project that had you know, your typical. It's like what you do in Java. I mean, you might have a model jar. You might version that. Hey folks, at this point in the podcast, we had a brief audio issue, so there's a quick intermission here in order to separate parts one and two. Enjoy some funk music.
yeah, so um, I think we were talking about uh, the Angular stuff and and how like the Nest.js stuff, man, it's so good. I I really love it. Um, there, it's one of those things where like the documentation isn't perfect sometimes, where I'll get stuck on these issues that I feel like are really trivial and they should have been answered somewhere, but but they're just not. Uh, but it usually turns out that I'm just kind of doing something dumb. Uh, whereas Angular, man, I feel like it's completely 100% documented, and I'm still looking at it like, why does this work? Well, I think it's completely like, 100% documented. documented. I think it's going to completely 100% break some of my stuff every time I upgrade the library. And people will insert a story into the sprint like, yeah, we really got to get to 7.3.2 because it's got the scaffolding of the observable. <laughs> like, and then I'm just like, right. I'm like, can I think of something nice to say? Probably <laughs> right. not. I'm just going to go on mute you know yeah and one of the uh, one of the like the fundamental principles of, of using something like svelte or whatever is you know they ask the the simple there's this fantastic video by this guy named rich harris who kind of is a bit douchey but he knows his stuff and um he he has this video called rethinking reactivity where he talks about web app design and and reactive programming and what it actually means and its origins and all this stuff and, and kind of comparing things like React and Angular to Svelte, which is something that he started and uh, you know has grown tremendously. And using it myself, I have to say, there's just something just, it just feels so natural. Like you're writing a H, like one of the fundamental questions they ask is what is the language of the web? And a lot of people will just be like JavaScript and it's not, it's the answer is, is it's HTML. Um, and uh, there's just something about it. Like when you're writing Svelte, you just, you're just you just writing HTML. Like there's just something so natural and, and amazing about it. Um, You've sold me. I'm going to have to look at it. I mean, I'll, yeah, I, I need something new in my life like that. For sure. And there are some problems. Um, last I got to use it, there was no TypeScript support, but like that, and that's one of the things that everybody says. And I actually, I went to a Svelte meetup because I was just so in love with it. I went to a Svelte meetup in Jacksonville. Don't ever tell anybody else that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I went to a, I went to a Svelte meetup and there was a bunch of people that asked a bunch of questions. And I eventually went to like this thing where we did kind of like a little mini tech talk about Svelte and I gave a presentation and that was really cool. I got a lot of really great feedback about my speaking and whatnot. And that's kind of one of the things that pushed me into wanting to do the podcast. Yeah. Um, but but they're, they're always the same question is, is being asked, like, well, what about TypeScript? Like. Like if you can't use TypeScript with it, it's just not an option. And I feel the same way now that I am in love with TypeScript. Like, man, I really want to use TypeScript everywhere that I can. But the reality is that when I was writing Svelte, I was making as complex applications as I've ever made before. And I didn't, like the JavaScript was just so incredibly simple and like not even really the main focus of the application to the point where I didn't, there was no complexity that I needed to like reinforce with typing, otherwise it was going to just be completely and utter garbage. I mean, there's a lot of good linting with ES6. I mean, you know, ES6, yeah, there's a lot of good linting there that, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like TypeScript a lot too. It's fantastic. And once they solve that problem, like, I think it's going to become the de facto web standard here in the next couple of years. But Yep. But I also feel like too, you know, if we wait around long enough, like eventually JavaScript will be typed, you know, like... So we could we could sit and do nothing, you know, and we'd be okay. But yeah, I think okay. I don't know. That's like I I didn't really miss TypeScript until I had to use it in a you know a larger enterprise, you know, backend type yeah, project, sure. right? I mean, where you really you care about that stuff. I mean, you don't have to have, you know, I never missed, um, I I, I never really missed types and strongly typed 
uh, you know, until recently and you know, coming from the Java world, God, that was the best part of not doing Java for a while, right? Like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip the script on this and I'm gonna change up my stack and I'm gonna go do something different. And I'm not gonna have to worry about, you know, class loaders and perm gen and how expensive it is to run a Java server. I'm just gonna do everything kind of sort of serverless. I'm gonna use something lighter weight and that kind of thing. I did type type types were not, not what I missed about Java. Oh, you know, until kind of recently, you know, and now I, you know, in the larger team too, in a larger team type types make sense. If it's just you and it's kind of a front end project, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good tooling for just plain old JavaScript, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I'm the exact same story for me. Like I was originally a Java developer and it was just so incredibly heavy and verbose and moving away from that to JavaScript. I was like, this is awesome. And then people are like, yo, here's some types. And I'm like, no, I don't want that. I, I left that on purpose. You guys just don't get it. Yeah, like I'm I'm in the I'm in the witness develop I'm in the witness protection program. Like I know some stuff and I'm not trying to cop to it. You know, that's that's like yeah, how I exactly. felt. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk for a minute about the this like just the like the six Java developers you meet in heaven. Right. Like I mean, everybody can be a Java developer and I'm amazed at how many people do Java for so long who suck at it. Like I recently, you know, I was, I was interviewing people for, for Java developers, you know, in a project where the language was Java, wasn't really there to write Java, except know something about it, know how to deploy it and, and, um, you know, kind of apply best practices to the code. I mean, that, that stuff doesn't change no matter what you're writing. And, um, I was amazed. I was interviewing these people and I was like, I haven't written Java in like, man, it's been damn near 10 years. And, you know, it was like, okay, here's the, the technical interview is let's, you know, use Spring, do some auto config stuff, hook it up to a, you know, a database and write a simple controller to bring something back, you know, from that data and into a controller, you know, like in other words, Spring Boot or Spring MVC, you know, hook it up to a database, you know, some auto wiring, some things like that. I was amazed. Like, that's the same stuff we were doing eight years ago. We had people who'd been, you know, senior level Java people who, I mean, they could not wrap their minds around it. I was like, this is like the pattern has existed for a long time. And then we'd have young, you know, younger people, you know, not trying to age anybody out or anything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm old as hell. Uh, but, you know, we'd have younger people who really probably don't even do Java three months, but were just solid developers and they could bang that stuff out or they'd know where to look, you know, within the time frame to get that done and have interesting conversations about it. I was just floored. I was sad about how little the needle has really moved. I'm sure there's a lot. Of, then there's, then there's like this sea of people who are just Java developers that work at large corporations who, I mean, they, they had trouble, you know, putting the, you know, put together a class. I mean, it's just, I'm like, where are you people coming from? How did you end up here and how are you employed? And, is every day just like you, you know, fake it till you make? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. It's a weird world. I think all the interesting people in Java. I'm not saying being a Java is a bad thing or it's a bad way to spend your your time or your career or whatever. But then there's like this fragmented world of all these weird languages that people, you know, they're almost like they're in some sort. They're devoted to that little sugary language. And uh, they kind of want to convince you of that. And that's what they're really all about. And they're not going to rest until they <laughs> get that into their enterprise, you know? Yeah, for sure. It's a weird world. Uh, 
yeah I've, I've really been i've been enjoying typescript i've been enjoying aws stuff um it's not perfect for me because you know again the cost and i'm a solo developer but you know um typescript has kind of seeped its way into into my uh my stack of choice i think at this point um I think earlier you, you mentioned uh, React Native. Yeah, I'm just, I'm so anti-JSX now. Um, it's not the end of the world. And to be honest, I would rather use React than Angular at this point. Even though I hate JSX, um, Angular, there's something about it, man. It's just a huge turnoff for me. It is kind of an anti-pattern for sure. Like, you know, it does it does feel weird. That is one thing that I did like about Angular, especially, you know, Angular 2, that's one of the few things they kind of carried over. It's like, you know, the idea that you've got a template, little, you have a little fragment of the template, and that corresponds to, you know, it comes back from mustache and handlebar days, I guess, you know, where you kind of match those two things up, you know, and that makes more sense to me. Um, sometimes you're right. Yeah, JSX is just, it, it is kind of weird. When you really think about it, it is kind of a strange yeah. way Yeah, it's counterintuitive. And I think if you if you look at like that's why I'm so sold on Svelte because if you think about like let's say get rid of the framework and you're just going to use vanilla JavaScript um, and you you just you're talking to someone who doesn't know what they're doing and they're they're asking you how can I build a web app what things do I need to learn and they're not asking like how can I do it with this framework that framework or the other and if you're not trying to answer them with a framework you would probably say you know start with HTML like you have mm -hmm. to know HTML no matter what you do. Yep. And then you're going to want to know CSS no matter what you do because you need to make your, your HTML look good. And then you have to know JavaScript because you need to be able to make your HTML do some stuff and like respond to user events and reach out to APIs and stuff. And, you know, unless you're trying to write a PHP app or some, you know, server rendered thing that, that uh, doesn't do any Ajax or something, which I think nobody wants to do these days. That's not a thing anymore. Um, and you can stop there. Like people can take those things and they can build web apps with them. And if you look yep. at something like Svelte, that's it. Like you learn those three things and you you learn like five API calls and you're off to the races and you can build anything that you want. And when you talk about something like React, it's like, okay, there's a lot more API to learn and just beware, they're going to switch that shit up on you every four months and you're going to have to like, oh, you know, back in the day when I, when I didn't know what hooks were and I was like looking around, I think I asked a question on Stack Overflow. Hey, this thing's not working. How do I fix it? And people get sidetracked. They're like, lol, you're not using hooks what are you an idiot like oh i didn't know that that was a thing yet i didn't realize they switched it up again right <laughs> um, yeah and of course now they have to learn jsx as well so it's like you need to learn html and then you need to learn javascript and you need to learn this weird half breed that is descended from both of them um but also polymorphism's bad let's not do that that's it's kind of funny because you've got the same developers that are on both sides of that fence yep well, and, and, like, yeah go ahead no, no, no. So, uh, when I was uh, when I was talking about Rich Harris and that rethinking reactivity, which by the way, totally you should watch it. You're probably not going to love the guy. He's kind of douchey. That's like I love him. I don't know why. I, th I think it's because of uh, of how much of an arrogant asshole that he is that I I like him a lot. Um, that's I mean it's why I like you, man. So uh, maybe you'll <laughs> like him. Who knows? Maybe. Who knows? But when I said check it out, you inspired me. I'm going to check this stuff out because it, it reminds me so much of what was going on. You know. <sighs> before this very opinionated set of world frameworks i mean oh, well don't get me wrong he's very opinionated but he's very opinionated in terms of like actually doing things kind of like right. in a way that that's easy for developers and like ends up with great products that don't have seven gigs to download for the the home page mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's one of the cool things about them using compilation like they're compiling your 
your input into this framework, essentially into this output that is your your app that's being served. And so, you know, it's got it. Let's say it's got 800 modules of of things that you could be using, uh, but you know, you're only using two of them. Then it's only going to bring those things in from the library into your your final output. So file sizes are a lot smaller. Although I've I've re read some stuff recently about how Angular is doing some compilation and some like tree shaking and all this fancy stuff. Um, and kind of like, you know, it, it, it's becoming less of a boon to use Svelte for that reason. But what I was getting it's at still is good. like, yeah, 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 it's still, it's still awesome. And it means that as they, they're not going to ever have to improve that. Right. They like by doing it, this comp, like the, one of the things that people say is compilers are the new frameworks. And by like taking that approach, you, it's very forward thinking. Um, and they, they've got a lot of evidence that using this is probably the best way right now to make uh, apps using web technologies for like smart devices or Internet of Things or embeddable or wearable stuff because it, it this file size is just so much smaller and you don't have the overhead of something like a virtual DOM or a shadow DOM type of library that's running every time that changes happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Well, man, like I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig into this a little bit. Plus, plus, plus now I, I, well, I mean, I'm, I mean, obviously I have to go to a startup or a, a meetup. Come on, don't give me too much shit, man. I'm just curious, like, what's the turnout there? Like, what's the, what's the, what's the demographic? Like, uh... so I've been working remotely. This is like a tangent um, and remind me to get back to the rethinking reactivity thing. Cause there's a point I want to make. But um, when I was in, uh, when I was doing development locally and Jacksonville is not a great place to do development locally salaries are low uh 90 percent of the people that i've worked with in jacksonville are that guy that it's like how the fuck are you getting paid um right, there right, was a right. like really quick extra tangent sub tangent there was this guy i worked with who was the tech lead and his his practice for deploying to production was to file zilla files that have been changed independently this. Yeah, he would independently file Zilla these files up to the production server and he would just like he wouldn't look at the the changes in Git or like make PRs or anything like that. He'd just be like, What files did you change? While I'm standing there next to him and I'm like, This cannot Whoa. be how you deploy to production. Um so anyways, Jacksonville sucks. Um and so my experience is with like a lot of these companies that are really small and they're not really interested in paying you very much. And uh, you've got, you know, only like three and three coworkers and they're all not very good. Um, and everybody's got a nephew working there, too. I mean, I know. I mean, I know. yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. The nepotism is real. So that being said. Um, uh, shit, what was your question even? Oh, I, I really just wanted to know, like at the felt meetup, like. Ah, yes. Oh, hats yeah. or what's like, I want to know, like, <laughs> so it was a couple of different types of people. So the reason I got into all that is that, um, I didn't really have a very high opinion of any like companies in Jacksonville because I'd worked for all of them that I knew of that were important and big and like doing well. And, and they all sucked. And so then I went to this meetup and it was at this like crazy building. It was like, it looked like a fucking bank. And I, I got there and I'm like sitting around and I asked this guy like, hey, what is, he's like, is all of this the same company? And it turns out, yes. And it's this company my buddy's been working for for, for a few years now, but they have this like crazy building. It's like 10 stories and there's just developers from the bottom to the top and uh, they're a Java shop and they just like, they do, apparently they do really good work They're They have a bunch of like bureaucracy issues uh, as, as far as like what I've heard, but um First of all, I was just kind of floored at like the facility itself. I was blown away because I'd never seen anything like that, especially for developing or like for, for software stuff. 
So um, I go in and it totally was like, I was expecting to be blown away by the presentation. And then it was this third party guy who had put the, uh, the talk together himself. And he, he just wasn't a very engaging speaker. You know what I mean? He was, he was, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and like all over the place and couldn't quite understand him all the time. And I was a little bit bummed out by that, but, uh, the sad reality is that <laughs> every sing- except for maybe one person, every single developer that was there other than me was they, they could have fit really well into the team that you left at SB. Okay. Okay. Like, so yeah. Super try hard, love angular observables are the way don't talk to me about anything else. What do you mean? It doesn't have TypeScript support. I'm leaving now. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, I mean, there were, there were a couple of hipsters and I, I probably was the, uh, you know, rock and snake bites and uh, a beanie at the time, although my snake bites are gone, sad face, but um, <laughs> I probably was sadly the most hipster of all of them. And I'm, the, I was also probably the least cool. Actually, no, that's not true. But yeah, I, 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 you know, I think you set the stage for me. I could, I can kind of see it. See, like, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I they were I, all I, a bit tr- older than me too. They were all like, I would say the average age there was probably like 35 so working remote okay so okay we, we can go off in a little covid covid kind of you know covid coping you know like i know you have loved you know loved ones in your life that you that you're with so like that helps right um, yeah working as, remotely I, is fantastic yeah for me it's like it's actually been a little i was kind of you know I, i'm not trying to make light of covid at all i just the first few weeks where everybody was you know i'm old enough to still be on facebook right and um just the people putting the memes up about working from home and, you know, like just all that stuff. I was just like over it instantly. I was like, man, I've been doing this for a long time from home. Like, this is a real thing. You know, I've got a space and it's, it's business time, you know? So I do understand the stresses of it. People that are not used to working from home, having to work from home. Sometimes they've got a spouse also working from home and they've got their kids with them that oh, aren't yeah. supposed to be there. Like it's a whole, it's a whole thing. I get all that um especially but, really quick tangent most yeah. people's kids suck so like yeah. for me for me i mean i know that you're in a good spot with your kid he sounds really cool uh well he's I, old enough he can kind of take care i mean you know it's right it's yeah i mean it's not like, like you don't I have to deal with a bunch of dumb shit like i i've got i've yeah. got my my daughter-in-law and she's really awesome she's very easy to manage and uh even when my nephews come over sometimes because their their parents are both dealing with all the same stuff and and they both still have to go into work right um and and so sometimes i'll have my nephews but it's nice that they're not shitheads because i can just be like hey listen i'm on a work meeting can you please chill out and like that's the end of the conversation yeah it's different if the kids are like probably three four maybe five you know i mean and yeah it's it's been interesting but but you know outside of covid you know, outlets, you know, are you doing meetups and stuff like that? I mean, like, what's your typical, cause like when you work remotely, like you've done, you've done it long enough now and I've done it long enough now where you, you, you have to establish some habits. Like, you know, you have to, well, you know, every now and then you got to decide, Hey, I'm going to go to the store at two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, because it's a, a great time to go to the store, but it's also like, you need to get out of the house or you need to go for walks. You need to, you need to have some hobbies that engage other people, you know, and not permit it up. How, how have you been dealing with that? Um, you know, honestly, uh, it's, it's here. It's neither here nor there for me, to be honest. I'm actually kind of a, I'm kind of a homebody, kind of a hermit. 
Um, so as far as like, I kept making the joke and this is actually very true. Like the first four weeks of COVID when everybody like was freaking out and like, Oh man, if I don't get out of the house soon, I'm going to stab myself in the eye. Um, yeah, I was like, I'm built. For I was, fine. I was making a joke that like, this hasn't changed my lifestyle. Like even 1%. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to say the exact same thing. I'm like, dude, I was, this is, I'm built for this. Like I have zero issue with this. I just feel like summer got started early because more people are around me that normally are not here all the time. For sure. And there's, there's like, there's not actual guilt, but there's like a, a like a bit of guilt to it as well, because you know, you're like, I, I've got a lot of friends who are young and, and not in like fully developed careers or, you know, doing more like, uh, labor jobs and stuff and and they're all getting laid off left and right and they're all stressed mm -hmm. out and like i've just my my job prospects are just going up daily you know what i mean it's yeah, just it's like weird, the field it? to be in yeah it's weird and in having work remote it's like a selling point right now i never thought you know i never for, well you know we, we, we'd work together but only a little bit right like we'd only we'd known each other only for a little bit and um i don't know we had that one guy on our team who was obviously not giving us his full attention was and this, uh was this the devops guy or the developer well take your pick yeah but I mean, well the developer <laughs> the developer is the one i was thinking the, the devops guy you know fuck him twice Talk about because yes i don't i'm, I'm convinced that's not even a real name um but i hope it is i hope it's well god i've had so many so many interesting interviews and stuff like that. But Do you yeah, remember I mean, that guy that you interviewed? What was his name? Jeffrey Star. It wasn't Jeffrey Star, right? That's a that's an internet guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was oh thinking. I, we're probably we're probably like we're probably like we might need to bleep that out, like you know, because um, that that was very interesting. And uh, you know, he if if he hadn't have, had looked so strange, you know, I probably wouldn't have Googled him and then not found out all this other stuff. Like this is you know, I mean. But at the same time, too, like, not a good interview. Like, so we 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 can't keep this in here. You know that. So like, yeah, I'll take that out. Actually, speaking of, since like since we can't keep that stuff in, there was this. Uh, I had this weird interview, um, like a couple of months before I left SB, where, uh, we I was doing an interview for like a like a tech lead, like a senior developer for the project, mm -hmm. and um, you know, he had like on his resume, he'd been working as a developer for like twenty seven years or something, and so we get into the interview, and he's he's like. And we asked him a basic question and he got stuck on like how do array functions work for like the array, the standard array library for JavaScript, like array.map, and he couldn't figure it out. And uh, I kind of like, I was just really blunt. I just asked like, I, I mean, hey, maybe we can just kind of end this interview, you know, um, a yeah, little I've bit. Been there. I've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I got, I got heavily shit on for that afterwards, but I was like, I'm sorry. Oh, like, really? Like, dude, yeah. I used to do that all the time. Like, I'd be there. I mean, I would be there. I would be there with some very polite guys. Like, I don't want to name any names, but you know, guys I really respect over there, like very polite guys, and they felt the exact same way. We we would just be like, uh, "This sucks. Let's dump this guy." Yeah, um, there was one know. guy where I this the guy I was talking about in particular. It was it was one of those things where it was like. Oh man, we're not going to be able. To, this guy's definitely not getting hired, especially not like even for a junior position. I I would not pass this guy as a yes. So let's maybe uh let's maybe end the interview or let's try and like teach him some stuff about arrays so that he can at least getting something out of it for like the last fifteen minutes. And uh, we tried to like open that 
like extend that olive branch and say, hey, do you want us to teach you how you should actually do this thing? And he got really pissed off. Like, you can't teach me. I've been doing this for 27 years. Exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Well, have a great day. All right. You, you can even keep this in, man. I had one of those interviews like that. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's times where it's like, you know, if they schedule it during lunch, right, they're not committed, right? They're they're totally trying to fit you in. It's scheduled for 90 minutes. They're going to do, they're going to, they're going to hit it out of the park in an hour, right? At lunch and then drive back to work like a little late. Oh, traffic sucked. You know, try to get this job without putting any effort into it. And, you know, they kind of come in and then, you know, at SB, man, like you got to come with it. I mean, they don't hire idiots and very strong developers. In fact, there were many times where I was like, God, I'm interviewing people that, are you know i mean i couldn't answer so i i couldn't process some of the a lot of the things that some of these but they, i'm of course too i'm in a different place right like i mean that's people don't people people don't really necessarily value my my technical skills as much anymore as they value other things maybe i bring and i'm that's not like that's not saying that i know something some secret i just uh I, you know i have pretty good instincts about certain things and you know that's that's a thing but i have been on interviews and i am not lying to you where it's like you tried to like you're like 10 minutes into it and dude you know like i i feel like i know in 10 minutes if the person doesn't know the stuff but it's like they could be a good partner i'm totally fine with it we can totally roll that direction and like we have had great hires that way you know but in the first 10 minutes like you know how it's gonna go like you get a pretty good gauge of their skill sets and you kind of tailor what you want to know about that person. And I'm always, I mean, I've been in an XP shop for five years, day in and day out, actually with Bird. And, you know, we're both the kind of the same. Like, I don't care what you know. I don't care. I don't care if you're smarter than me. That's great for me. You know, like, awesome. Let's, let's do a lot of that. I don't care if you're dumber than me. I don't care if you even do this technology. Like, could I pair program with you day in, day out for 40 hours a week? Because if, if I can't see myself doing that, like, man, it's – don't start. I mean, it's just not going to happen, you know, because that's what it's really – I mean, that's the most valuable skill, right? Like, when you when you have to solve problems, that's what it's all about. But we've had things like that where that, after that 10 minutes, you know which way it's going, man. you got 80 more minutes. You're like, okay – how can I fill this time out? I can let this person flounder for 20 minutes if I don't like them. And they're not, if I don't like this person because they're funky, then I can let them flounder for 20 minutes, but then I've got to talk for about 60 to fill up the rest of the time. You know, and you kind of do some things like, hey, you know, this maybe this isn't for you, like your skill set. You're like, could you, you know, maybe do you want us to interview you in a different way? Or maybe you want to take some time and reschedule? You, know, you try to extend those olive branches. Just give them a graceful out because they're not taking it seriously a lot of times. Man, this one guy, he wore me out. It it started bad. You know, I tried to do the thing that you're talking about where you try to kind of like, okay, let's turn this into some sort of exercise for the both of us. Like, well, let's work through this thing together and let's, let's, I'll pretend I've never seen this before and we'll go research this. How do you solve this problem? Man, he was just, He's just an asshole the whole time. I'm like, man, you know, I got stuff I got to do. 
right? Yeah, for sure. It's and, weird. These people come in and they have these awesome resumes and then they waste your time. And when you're like, well, let's try and like salvage something from this and they get, they get upset with you. They get angry and it's like, okay, well then goodbye. Sorry. Yep. Well, I told this one guy straight up. I was like, man, you know, you have worn me out. <laughs> and like, I like people, I, I like people, you know, you have worn me out. I want you to go back to your job. I want you to hug that job. I want you to tell you that job that you love it because that's about as good as it's going to get for you. Whatever you're doing right now, man, you have really snowed them and you know, you should treat them great. <laughs> and that's how we left the call. I mean, that was like, I, I just got straight up mean on this dude. Cause it, it just, man, it was just so bad. Then I've had other ones where it started out and it was maybe, you know, somebody who, I don't know, maybe they didn't do that particular technology day to day, um, or maybe they were a little, you know, they were less than assertive about kind of how they talked or how they solved problems. And you kind of get a little bit out of them and you find yourself rooting for them. And the next thing you know, you're like, I got to get this guy. Like I've, I've seen that too. And it's, or got girl, right. I mean, I'm not trying to be, you know, and then, you know, you love working with them. Right. So it's, and then you have people to just like blast through some challenge and just like, God, this guy's so boring. I don't really see myself. <laughs> I don't see myself en enjoying working with this person if they're on my team. Yeah, for sure. And honestly, I, um, you know, what's crazy. This is like, statistically speaking. Um, I thought about this the other day and I, and I know for a fact that I am like, not, I, I, I am as objective as I can be when it comes to gender. Um, and I've now, I've probably interviewed like 40 guys total in my history as a developer. And I've probably interviewed only seven girls. So of course the, um, the, the ratios are a bit different, but like every single one of the women that I've interviewed has been just amazing. Killing it. Yeah. I, I know every mean. time. I know, yeah. Yeah. I, every I, time. I can say a few names that we both know where, okay. So I've, I've told you before early on, you know, I mean, good grief, man. Like I bet you I interviewed. I wish I had kept a tally. I bet you I interviewed at least three or 400 people, you know, I mean, both from the, uh, you know, the 30 minute shakeout kind of call to the technical interviews. I think I was probably better at the shakeout call. Um, it's wild. Yeah. Easy. But I remember that first year I worked for SB, man, like, um, I mean, they were kind of small back then. So I ended up like interviewing a ton of people. I remember that first corporate retreat, we got together and I had a, like, I had a list of like 50 people who had been hired that I'd interviewed. And that was just like a subset of the people I'd interviewed, you know, and I got to meet all of them. It was awesome. But there was, there was two people I interviewed that first six months. One was you. And then one was, um, I mean, I'm not going to say her name because I don't want to put her out there, but, um, two interviews that kind of blew me away. And I was like, man, this is like, this is a fun interview. This is a person I'd like to work with. They're solving these problems in interesting ways. Like, man, this chick, she like had like four. <laughs> she was using Emacs and like had like four windows going. And oh I, yeah, I remember her. I totally remember her. Oh my god, it was like watching somebody play the piano. And then like she wasn't even a JavaScript developer. I can't remember what she did. And she lived like in the New York City area, and uh, <laughs> she was she was super cool. And, uh, or is super cool. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, she's still with us. She's in the past. <laughs> but, um, or, hey, maybe cool. the implication could be that like she became really lame. Like she, 
She got lamer over time. Yeah, maybe she got lame over time. I hope not. Last time I saw her, it looked like she was still having fun. You know, I mean, she was had at least it was like a planning thing, and it was, you know, she was still loving her job, which I, that's awesome, right? And uh, but yeah, she was like, yeah, I live in, I think she lived in Jersey, and she commuted to the city every day, right? So that's like an hour, right, each way. And then she worked at some job she didn't particularly like. Um, and I'm thinking, man, there's no way they know what a badass this chick is. And then, oh, man, I mean, we interviewed this one lady. I say lady because she was actually kind of my age, you know. So, like, when you get to be my age, <laughs> you're a lady. Was she was she Java-focused? She was, I think, actually uh, – no, she was JavaScript. Uh, she had written a, a sort of an – uh, an ODM or not an ODM, but like an ORM layer to Postgres. And she, that was, that was like an open source library she maintained. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but at one point we had kind of this shakeout technical interview where you uh, connected to, you know, just connect to a database, run an API layer, like write an API that deliv- that gives us a row or several rows of data, you know, in a, in a node thing right and then go from there like you know how would you do this if it was real like how would we test this like that kind of stuff right and she just was like well i would just use this thing that she happened to be the author of and it had a you know had a ton of people interested in it on on github she had a lot of forks and polls and you know all kinds of stuff and uh she's like well i would just use my thing and then she like hit three she ran three commands imported our database and had like a working api with tests it was like it was like literally fifteen minutes, and I was like, I, I mean, I wasn't trying to use that ORM framework because I was like, I, I don't, I don't need another one of those in my life. But I was like, this is like something she just scratched out in an afternoon, and then people use it. She asked, I was, I was like, we got to hire her immediately. We got to, we got to get her. Like, I don't care what it takes. Like, got to get her. Like, if I only know that she's going to do insane stuff. If anything, she might be bored, right? And uh, she asked the most interesting questions. Um, she, I can't remember what part of the country she was from. She was, I want to say it was somewhere, somewhere really kind of random too. Like it was like in the, um, you know, the mountain time zone or something like, you know, all those states. So I can't remember, but, you know, she asked the most interesting questions about, you know, like what's your company's policy on diversity and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, SB was a pretty diverse company and, you know, had minority ownership and things like that. So, you know, I was like, okay, cool. This is going good. Like, you know, she's asking questions that, you know, I actually have answers that are probably good for, but I have to believe that, you know, she was one of these people that put her stuff out there and within, you know, a week, you know, she had amazing offers and, um, should be running team, maybe running teams. I don't know, or maybe developing, you know, some sort of pretty cool products might've been a little bored doing what we're doing, but you know, uh, that was a, a pretty cool interview. Yes, yeah, I mean, speaking of which, you kind of mentioned before you actually interviewed me, and that was for my first remote gig. Also, random tidbit: I'm not sure if I mentioned this earlier. My uh, my fiance kind of lost her shit in the background because I said uh, daughter-in-law when I meant stepdaughter. Well, I don't want to say anything, but daughter-in-law was like, I was like, yeah, that's kind of. I strange. was thinking you're, yeah, I didn't like, I didn't want to call you out because we were living in some some interesting times, but I didn't know if you were involved in some sort of plural marriage kind of polygamy thing or what she's like daughter-in-law i'm trying to i was trying to sort out how that worked <laughs> yeah yeah that was definitely the wrong but who am i to talk i've got a step-nephew <laughs> a step-nephew what the fuck yeah i don't have a step-nephew 
Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, speaking, so we're talking about demographics here, and, and one of the things that I've been talking about, and, and I have been known to say this a, a pretty harsh way, like, I've been known to, to kind of over, like, go a little bit overboard on my opinions about this. Um, so instead of just diving into how I feel about it objectively, I'm just going to give an, a small anecdote. And this actually happened, you know, at the company we both worked at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really, I can't remember the guy's name. So that's sad because I, I would totally out him if I could. Um, there was this day, you know, we had that water cooler chat, the random chat on Slack, right? Yes. And I, I go in there one day, you know, like towards the end of the day, it's like three o'clock or something. And there's a bunch of people just like absolutely shitting on welfare, like as a construct. And I'm not really? at all, I'm not saying, you know, one way or the other, like I'm pro welfare, I'm anti welfare. That's not the point here. The point is that they were like, they were really going in on it. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a diverse conversation. They weren't trying to like learn or grow or like evaluate other people's perspectives. It was a group of like upper class white men that were just shitting on welfare as a whole. And they were all kind of like, enjoying the fact that they each hated it so much and just uh, were at this like this great consensus and That's then very uh, one of them weird very uncaring sure. I, I didn't really go into those i mean i don't have time for that stuff man you know and i find there's a lot of people who just lob out messages out there to in, in those type of channels just to appear busy when they're really not like you know almost like they could set up a cron job and lob hey does anybody else have a problem building the project right now and then like five minutes later Oh, never mind. Figured it out. Like if you if you developed a bash script to do that, like, dude, you could not work for four hours a day in most companies. But that's sad. Yeah. So I jumped in and I because because one of them said something, and I I really obviously I can't remember the details here, but he said something along the lines of like the worst part is that statistically the people who are on welfare they like give nothing back to society and neither do their children or something like this. And I was like, you know, I like this is where I start at the conversation like i come in i'm reading through these messages and i'm getting a little salty because uh you know random random background information about myself um i come from a very poor family and i i grew up in a trailer in a shitty area on the west side of jacksonville i mean i grew up in a trailer too that's crazy and the only reason that i ate food as a child was because welfare is a, is a thing that exists in our country and so i jumped in and i was like you know it's really interesting that you feel that way because uh, I only ate as a child because of welfare, and here I am, you know, doing the same work as you. And like, the, the interesting thing about about that company is that they're not just like doing random shit, or like it's not it's not like working for a marketing firm or a PR campaign or something that's trying to scam people or a service. It doesn't really matter. I mean, this is actually like really impactful stuff. It kind of helps reduce the burden on taxpayers as far as the software goes. I mean, they're kind of the good guys in the game. Yeah, and. I mean, that doesn't mean that the government's not going to take those savings and then shit them out somewhere else, and it, it, eventually it won't really have an impact. But the reality yeah, but is I, that— Yeah, I, I agree with you. You don't come to that company to work if you're— uh, like, you, know, you don't come to that company to work if you don't have some altruism or at least some sense of where we fit in the world in relationship to government. <laughs> For sure. And so I said something like, you know, it's funny because I, I'm here. I'm basically your equal just doing the same work as you, providing an actual value to society. And uh, here's how you know that there's a stigma in the world of software. And I mean, this is beyond the fact that, like, I've had seven jobs now and 90% of the people I've worked with have been white men whose origins have been as, like, upper middle class or better. Um, and, and the fact that I went to college with white guys who would say things like, if you're not programming on a $7,000 Mac, you're not programming. That's not really programming. 
So they all have these ideals of like what being a, a software engineer is and it's them. And there's no deviating from that. So if you're not them, you know, good luck because being a software engineer is really, really hard and I can do it because I'm fantastic, but like good luck because it's really hard. Um, yeah, and, I, I don't know, man. That's weird. It's it's especially interesting too because uh, like it shut the conversation down. It wasn't like I said that and then like, a bunch of people were like, oh, that's actually really interesting. Like, this is reasonable, that and the other. Like, it just shut the conversation down. Like, nobody wanted to talk about it anymore. And then somebody said something kind of snarky. So I said something snarky back. And then somebody, I can't remember his name. Somebody that was like a higher up in the company. It was a white guy. I can't remember his name. He reached out to me. And he's like, hey, you know, if you could stop talking like in that manner in, in the, the public random chat or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm interested. Mm. Did you did you reprimand the other guy who who was also being a shithead uh, or, or is this just me? Um, because mm. I because I'm disagreeing with like the masses here. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons I left, because I didn't like the idea of like there being this this open platform for people to sort of voice these uh, these opinions that come from like a lack of a lack of um, experience in those things, you know, like how can you really talk about the value of people on welfare? If you don't know anybody that's on welfare or have never been somebody that's on welfare, you know what I mean? Well, and I'd say, I'd say too. So, I mean, Hey, Hey man, I, I live there. So I, I live in the South. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, this isn't even a political thing, right? Like, I mean, we don't, we don't have to show our political cards here. I think probably people could infer, maybe where each of us are, right? But like I'm not gonna show my political cards. I can I can just tell you that there's a homogeny around certain ways of thinking that I think it's like people like to reinforce. And I have a buddy who's on the opposite end of the political spectrum from me. So that I that I speak to every day. I speak to my best friend every day for probably fifteen minutes. And um he's on the complete opposite of me in a in a lot of ways. And uh we both lament the fact that like people tend to only talk. Well, people tend to really relish around talking with people who agree, you know, who agree and reinforce echo chambers. That's echo right, chambers what they, right there. It's not even what they think they know. It's like what they think somebody else wants to hear. And so, yeah, that's the total echo chamber. And that's where we're, that's, that's, that's 2020. Right. And it's, it's real weird. And, I also have never okay, so some people too, like I told you I'm old I'm old as fuck, right? So like, you know, some people get more into like their their way of thinking. Like some people get more ingrained in their thinking as they get older. And some people get more open in their thinking as they get older, right? And I'm I'm kind of starting to discover like, hey, I live around a lot of people who you know, they kind of run to that comfort zone and that's fine. I mean, it, it's like, I get it, right? It's, it, as long as you're not hurting somebody or, or whatever, I, I kind of don't care, right? Um, although, let's face it, like there's a lot of people who are ingrained in their thinking, no matter what they think, that are hurting people right now, either consciously or unconsciously um, in terms of like the collective consciousness. But, you know, I'm kind of one of these people that I, I find the older I get, the less I really just have to have like very rigid ideas about uh, things that other people do. But one of the things that angers me the most that I've heard for a long time is this really kind of just, it's in us, man. Like it is ingrained about the other. So like, you know, you grew up in a trailer park. I grew up in a trailer park. We didn't know about that each other until like a minute ago. Right. 
and I'm sure we had very different experiences growing up. That those two things don't make us exactly the same. But you know, I will say like I I don't think people anymore like really they they don't understand that that you know if you work 40 hours a week man you are working class right like you know i don't care what you do i don't i don't care if you're at the hertz rental place or if you are wearing a suit and tie and you are driving in and it's a grind dude it, i i don't care if you're making you know if you're working for somebody and you're putting in that time you are working class and we just can't get past this idea that if you're working you don't want to admit that you don't want to know the work that other people are putting into that system and you want to invent the other. This is what people have been doing to us. And I'm talking about us as a, just a, a culture, you know, for a really long time. And that fucking angers me, man. Like this idea that there's this other person who's taking other things from us. Guess what? You go into the Walmart, you buy some cheap ass funky meat. You know, that person who's checking you out, that person maybe on some sort of public assistance and guess who pays we all pay we all pay so we can have some cheap ass meat so that, that person can struggle a little bit go home and try to you know get some assistance to put their own cheap ass meat on the table that's fucked up so people that dismiss other people's experiences like that whether they're temporary or they're systemic and they go on forever i don't care if you're liberal or conservative that's just fucking wrong yeah, and it's really dumb. Honestly, that's a uh, that's one of the other things that I've been talking about a lot lately. Um, is that I think this is something that all of us have trouble with. I think everybody. I don't know anybody that doesn't struggle with this to a degree, and, and especially I think right now it's like if you go on Facebook or Twitter and you read some comments about the shit that is happening in America right now, you will get this in full force, and that is the fact that each and every one of us struggles to separate perception and reality. Like all of us have this inability to separate it. You know, it's like I experienced this. Therefore, that's how the entire world is. I that's mean, the and you definition can... of ego. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, man. And it's so great because I know this fucking guy who who is always like we are ethereal. We are all of the one. We need to give up our ego and dissolve back into the ethereal pool of liquid. Hara Krishna, whatever the fuck. And uh, the the next minute he'll be like, here's this really strong opinion. And if you disagree with me, fuck you. I'm right. You're wrong. Um, and yeah. that's we, a tangent, we only have enough, we think... only have a very small amount of time on this planet, right? I mean, like, so yeah, we can do both. I mean, that, that's I guess I guess that that would be my takeaway from that those two extremes, right? Like somebody who is so entrenched in their position, they're convinced they'll feel this way the rest of their life. They feel like somebody's taking from them, or they feel like they're moral superior, like they're morally superior due to things they they have or things they want. Look. There's really there never really was a lot of shame in just trying to work for the weekend, right? Like that's life. That's I mean, if you're lucky and you have a family, like and you're working for the weekend, man, that's the best weekends of your life. Enjoy it. Hang on to that. Don't give them any more than, than they can take from you. Um, that's my take. But you know, we can also realize that we're a part of a larger collective and we do have a responsibility to society at large to, to be good citizens, to try to move us all forward, you know. Um, that's actually that's a lot of why i started the podcast is because you know reflecting on the things that are happening now and like reading so i thought to myself you know hey i'm a software engineer i'm doing pretty awesome like i really want to to give back to society especially locally because i i actually when i went to college i got a full ride from this 
this organization yeah. that, that did stuff locally and like it legitimately impacted my life in a huge way actually i'm trying to get a hold of the woman that was running that scholarship system at the time to sort of do an interview with her and, and try and get her ideas about you know kind of the current state of america education how how the virus is going to impact education going forward because i know that i mean for for uh for my stepdaughter geez i almost said daughter-in-law again for my stepdaughter it was it was definitely super clusterfucked like it was not a, a good time i'm curious like how how did things shake down for your son as far as with covid oh uh, with school and stuff i mean yeah. oh you know it's it was in some ways a not a bad thing in other ways like i mean as good as it could have gotten so you know he, go, he goes to public school we live in a really good school district i really do um, here in Tennessee, where I live, um, state testing is like a lot for me on the outside looking in. It's a lot of that last quarter, right? So they kind of went away after the third quarter. And really, uh, to me, the fourth quarter was always kind of a wash. You know, like they really spend a lot of time preparing for the state test. They take the state test. And then really you have about two weeks of curriculum that's like new. Right. Most of it's review that quarter. So in some ways, it was a great way to be out of school. You're not missing much. Right. I mean, most of the curriculum has been taught on the other side of the thing. You know, it's like, you know, you put a you put a, a tool in the drawer, you know, it's going to get dull. Right. So he didn't he didn't have a lot he missed. They didn't have a lot they could offer to do, which is, you know, I think what most people are kind of bugging out about. And then a lot of people, you know, really honestly kind of out themselves as shitty parents, you know, like they they really want their kids to go back to school because they can't stand. Kids, yeah, you know? for sure. There's definitely a lot of that. Um, for us, it was like, she, you know, they, they, I think, yeah, we bought her like a little Chromebook type thing and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they set her up. I mean, they had, they had some that they were giving away for free and stuff, but um, we, we had seen, you know, like, you know, the numbers on how many people had said that they needed them. And, you know, we knew that we could swing, uh, a simple thing instead of taking away from their resources and how old also, if you don't mind me asking like I mean, she's she just turned seven not too long in january so she's she's at a really yeah. vital time too that's you know it, it, yeah. so that was not great um so my, and kid, the service my kid's that going they into high school yeah so it's like if he does online learning in the fall it's probably fine I and mean, yeah he'd like to hang out with his buddies and stuff but like i know people that are like their kids had real school online and they're in kindergarten like you can't do kindergarten first grade like you it takes so much coaching so much cheerleading like that's those are the years that you're really trying to make them feel good about what they're learning and like that experience oh and man it's really it's something it's something too that like as a learning experience as you know i'm a new parent and uh, even though she's seven you know i just got with my fiance about a year and a half ago so i'm new to it and she's never had to deal with that you know the teaching portion of it beyond like the typical stuff you know reading books and whatnot and you know it's something that we've we've both learned we're not super great at teaching i'm especially not like i just do not have the fucking patience for it um especially with a seven-year-old who's just not super interested anyways and they're trying to find anything else that they can do with their time it, it's right. rough and that's it's always amazing think... what other people can get your kids to do. Like that's, you can't forget that. Like, Dude, you know, is. we're, we're not like, course I, I know some parents who are teachers and they can kind of organize their kids, but the kids are also different because they're teachers kids. Right. And, but you know, you can't, you can't ever dismiss the fact that like, you know, when you start handing your kids over to other people, like until that point, like they're in your world, and, you know, whether they, whether you want to admit it, a lot of people won't. But it, whether you want to admit it or they understand it, you know, you know, implicitly, like, you know, 
they get to start seeing the flaws in how limited your world is because you impart only a certain part of that to them. And then, then there's this huge world and they get to see how other people live and how other people, other families live and how, you know, there's other, then there's the knowledge component too. It's like that with, you know, coaching and it's like that with, with any of that stuff, right? Like your kids start, it's, it's really a gentle train wheels way to let your kids realize that, you know, you're kind of full of it and there's this whole other thing out there and they got to figure that out. Yeah, for sure. Um, going back to, to the thing we were talking about before, um, with, so that's, that's with all the stuff going on with the, the climate that we're in in America right now, I, I got like really passionate about like trying to teach people. And so the first thing I did, I mean, the first thing anybody does when they're thinking about, you know, like I was thinking, should I make a podcast? Should I do a YouTube channel? Like, how should I get myself out there? You know? And, um, so the first step is what already exists? Like, what am I competing with and what, like, what are the mentalities of these things? Like, is this something that's already covered? I mean, am I going to be wasting my time? Because my goal is not to, like, use YouTube or something as a source of income, although that would be sweet. But, um, you know, but just to actually provide value to people. And most importantly, I think, to to broaden the the scope of who thinks that they can become a software engineer and and talk about the differences between computer science and software engineering and stuff mm -hmm. and, and demystifying it. Because you don't need to be a scientist to make web apps. Like, it's not a thing. Um, no, it's probably, it's honestly, it's probably, <laughs> probably won't help you. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say it won't help you with a capital H I'm saying it won't. Oh, it, it is an it, absolute waste of time. I went to school for four years. I learned all sorts of great stuff about computer science. And now I don't think about it even 1%. Yeah. I have an inferiority complex about that. I'll just be honest with you. So again, I'm old, man. I'm an old dude, you know, um, like I spend as little time thinking about this stuff as, as possible, right? Back to those weekends. Like I am enjoying the time I have with my family and no one's taking that away from me. That's one of the reasons why I'm remote, right? Like I get two hours a day back with them, you know? And, you know, I have an inferior complex. When, when I got into this stuff, man, there was really, I mean, there was probably something called computer science. Um, but in the late 90s, I bet you almost every IT shop was run by the, you know, the CIO or, or whoever was you know, really the top dog. They were typically people with finance backgrounds because really software and IT in companies was really a function of negotiating software licensing. And uh, you know, that's where you see the rise of companies you know, like Oracle or you know, anything like that, right? I mean – Hey, we have this thing that you really need, and we're going to license it to you in perpetuity. You know, just take all your money. There wasn't really something called software development, like at all, right? The internet was happening. I don't think uh, a lot of people knew how to take that. I also don't think they saw the value to their business, you know, until, you know, maybe sort of Amazon early on. I, you know, e-commerce. Everybody was trying to get into e-commerce, but you know it didn't take long for people to realize you can build shopping carts pretty easily. You can charge credit cards fairly easily. Although at first that was kind of a thing, you know, my background's in fine arts really. Um, well, my background's kind of in craft. I, I'd like to think of my background is in craft. So I grew up, um, my grandfather had a cabinet shop. My father uh, had a cabinet shop. He really just retired the last few years, still does some stuff, you know, ran a business for many, many years, you know, made his own machines, uh, worked with people, you know, solved problems inside of space and had to do that with something tactile. And I grew up in that business, you know, so for me, 
uh, you know, I got really interested in photography at a young age. There was a, a huge craft component to it back then in the sense of you, you know, you had to know how to do dark work. You had to understand art. You had to understand composition. You had to understand chemistry. You had to understand uh, light. You had to understand things you can pull and move around to get what you want once you know how to pre-visualize. So it's, it was tactile and it was kind of more ethereal and more, you know, like abstract, right? And so I was classically trained as a photographer and, and specifically I was interested in documentary work, long-term documentary work, journalism. Uh, I did, I did, did write a lot too, actually, you know, but you know, all that said, you know, I really got into that and that's, that's what I did, you know, near the end of my college career, you know, they were yanking out dark rooms and putting in computer labs, which, which was awesome. I mean, I, some of the first documentary projects I was a part of happened kind of on the internet collaboratively. Like that was something back in those bandwidth days and the very limited nature of, you know, just basic HTML pages. I mean, the frame tag had just come out. Like that was probably the hottest, latest stuff, right? You could do collaborative documentary projects in a distributed way, and you could move that content around in a collaborative way. That was starting to happen. But okay. random interjection, like with, with the, as, like as a note on that whole inferiority complex thing, that is exactly why I wanted to interview you. Like, because I knew for a fact, like legitimately, I've worked with all sorts of folks and you are, you know, definitely in the top three as far as getting shit done and like just like the ability to actually, uh, you know, be a good tech lead and to get projects moving and, and get less caught up on I'm really opinionated about Golang and like what's best for the business right now. And really when it comes to like me and you working on a team together, when we look back on it, what was the biggest blocker? It was the business themselves. You know what I mean? It wasn't us. It yeah, wasn't it's always like that. we yeah. were getting shit done. And that's why, you know, I'm really passionate uh, about the fact that like you do not need a computer science degree to be a software engineer. In fact, it like you said, it will probably inhibit you. I've known all I've known people that are amazing computer scientists. You know, they'll write this like crazy algorithm to generate matrices and do all this crazy shit and generate all the test cases possible for an input set and like ask them to build a website that has a decent UI and has some scalable web services on the back end and is going to be a bad time for everyone. And on the other hand, you've got someone like you who is like able to crush it and get shit done and like build the infrastructure for it too. Like, oh, your DevOps guy's not responding. Fuck it. I'll just do his work too. And, uh, you know, really get your job done, but, you know, sit you down with, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but like, from from what you said earlier, uh, sit you down with like a, a hardcore computer science project, like a little you know coding yeah. test, and it's like ah, I'm just not even fucking interested. Yeah, um, big O notation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm just like, hey, that's that's I'm, I've moved past that. First of all, thanks, yeah. thanks thanks for saying all that. That's really complimentary, and you know, I uh, if if I if I if I left that impression with you, I'm I'm happy that that I have, and I'd also be like, yeah, man, I fooled that guy. Um, <laughs> that's how I, that's so, my whole career is just like, how much can I trick people into thinking yeah. that I'm awesome? You know? Right. So a couple things there, right? So one, you know, yeah, for me, I, I, again, I come from a very working class background and there's only one thing that matters. Well, there's two things that matter. Number one, we got to get this done, right? It may not be the most beautiful thing. It may not be the most elegant thing. You know, we want to strive for that as artists, right? Like you want to have something elegant. That, that's what, you know, good design is about. You want to have something beautiful, elegant, efficient, natural feeling. You want to do that. That's the ideal, right? 
But the working class background in me, the tactical part of me is like, we got to get this done. And then number two, you've got to get that money. So the thing is, it's like, that's where number one has to happen. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that is the thing about software engineering is it's not a science like science, as Neil deGrasse Tyson himself says, is like humans have this collective knowledge that's bound by this circle. And that circle is the edge of our knowledge base. And outside of it is all the shit that we don't know. And scientists are people that are standing on the edge and pushing forward the, the concepts of like the things that we know and uncovering new truths about the universe. That is not what ninety nine point nine 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 percent of programmers do. They are no. working towards some business goal. Like they have a goal in mind and like who cares how much, it, how good it looks as long as it does its fucking job. And if it looks fantastic as well, that's a bonus. But we don't need to reinvent databases. You know, we don't need to like come up with this new way to do basic stuff. Um, and for some reason, I feel that most software engineers try and push themselves like I'm a computer scientist. No, you're really not. You're no, really no, no, not. they're not. And the thing is, is too, it's like you got to realize, like I gave up a long time. It was and maybe maybe this is still happening and i just don't know about it but you know i mean i was i i, I saw it early in one iteration of my career as, as somebody interested in content management system stuff but you know for a while there and i still work with some people like this where they have a framework for everything like you know they have some task that's assigned to them or they have we have something we have to build and they want to develop a framework around it i mean you know, it's, it's out there in the universe man you can use it extended but really it's just a very bloated tool to accomplish the singular task they needed to. I know based on what I do for a living and kind of, you know, what I'm going to continue doing, <laughs> you know, is I'm really a user of frameworks, right? Like I don't, I don't invent some of this stuff, right? Like I want to, you know, just like a DJ is not, you know, necessarily inventing the sounds like, you know, we got to chop that stuff up and make it hot, you know, but it, that's, that's what I mean. I'm a user of frameworks. There are probably really there's such smart people that are making frameworks that I'll eventually use, and the community will get involved in those. And computer science people, especially in AI and machine learning stuff, that you know we need computer scientists to do that to create the next tools and frameworks that we're all going to end up taking for granted and making us all look good and put food on the table. But I, I have no pretension about you know I'm not I'm not creating those frameworks. I'm not computer yeah, science. Yeah, and I'm I think the framework. nice thing is. The nice thing is that it can blend for everyone. I mean, you can be a little bit of both. I think I'm a little bit of both. Um, yeah, I definitely say that I am. I know a lot of people that are like hard left or hard right, obviously not politically, but like, you know, they're either very scientific minded or they're like really focused on the math. And that's who I thought I was at first. Like I thought I was going to be an awesome mathematician. Turns out I'm really good at applied math or I was back when I gave a shit and I'm really bad at actual mathematics. And so I, I ended up going into computer science and because it's like a whole language and it's really terrifying when you, when you really get up there. I got to foundations of math and I was like, I got two days in and was like, yeah, I'm going to move on with my life. This is bullshit. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, just the, the idea of pushing software engineering as an art form and, and a vocation almost and not like not to diminish the effort that we put in or what we do, but like just to call it for what it is. And to stop letting people glorify, it. and that's actually what I was yeah, saying. It's, it's, the new, like, it's the new plumbers, man. I mean, that's that's how I felt. It's exactly we're the new plumbers. That's that, that's really all there is to it. Like, there's no reason to make it any more elevated than that, you know? Exactly. And that's my that's one of the reasons I started the podcast is because, like I said, I started doing research. What's out there? What exists? And if you look on YouTube and you like find the most popular software engineer channels, like they are that guy. They heavily glorify the work that they do. They're very impressed with themselves. 
They all come from a background of like relatively decent money. You know, they had computers and access to like hardcore software and hardware young, especially now, you know, because it's people in their like thirties and early forties who are making this content. And now you got people in their twenties and it's, it's predominantly dominated by those people who like, I define what software engineering is and you have to do what I did. So you need to start programming at seven and you're, father has to have programmed for at least 20 years before that so he could teach you everything and and then you need to go to college at 17 and and graduate at 19 and if you don't and like immediately move and drop everything and move to silicon valley or wherever and start working for google or facebook you're not going to be a real software engineer and that is like the message that they're putting out there now and it's mm. half that and half these kids that are like you know, they did that and now they're 19 or 20 or 21 or 22 and they're filming themselves doing like their daily activities at Google or Facebook and they're they're glorifying it. And that's my fear is that five, 10 years from now, as especially like software engineering is kind of a pop culture. Like if you've got computer science, which is the real culture, software engineering is kind of the pop culture. Like we're not the ones pushing things forward. We're the one using the content that that these other people are creating or or discovering or inventing. And uh, my fear is that people are going to like the average person is going to get this warped view. I mean, think about some kid that could be a fantastic software engineer, some art focused kid that could do a great job and could even start at 16 and start an internship or start making his own apps and making his family who's struggling some money. But instead he goes on YouTube and he sees this image of this kid who like went to college and then moved to Silicon Valley and is making $190,000 a year at 20 years old. And is like, oh, well, unless I do that, I'm not a software engineer. So I should probably just give up. Yeah, that's nuts. And I mean, yeah, it's the other thing, too, is I, I, I kind of feel like, well, we went through it a little bit in the late 90s. Like I worked for a startup and like you'd be, and of course, I worked for a startup and not even a, you know, a location of the United States where that was a hot thing. Right. Like it wasn't like I lived in Silicon Valley or anything. He was like, oh, man, you work for a startup. Like, what do you, what do you got to do for that? I'm like, dude, you just got to show up like show up and learn this stuff man like you know and it was people didn't even care what the startup was about they're just like oh man you're on that internet stuff it's just, it was very weird to me now i i i, I don't want to sound antisocial, but like i don't really look i have hobbies right like i don't do this because i just it's the most important thing in my life it's just something i do and it, you know i love it sure um but like it's not going to be this all-encompassing thing that consumes me and it's well i think about like i have too many hobbies right and and again i think know, again i'm somewhere like right like in in the middle like probably more leaning towards towards your side of things where like i really love software and i'm like really passionate about it but i've got a lot of other shit that i need to worry about like my family and music and all this other stuff so it just, yeah you hit the nail on the head early in the conversation right like you hit the nail on the head early in the conversation right where you were you know, like with, let's say, let's go back to the Angular thing real quick, right? Like you get these people who are really into this feature and they're going to push this technology. And then in five years, it's like, they're going to have to refactor everything, right? Like, well, you know, so here's the other thing I can look at this through the lens of, like I'm 45 years old, right? Made plenty of mistakes. Another career before I ever did this stuff. I've reinvented myself several times, you know? I mean, you know, through the lens of this age, right? And dealing with, you know, junior developers and developers who are older than me and architects and like looking at companies and, you know, sometimes being known that the best solution is not the one that always wins. In fact, if you can get that 30% of the time, you're doing great. And you get told what to do a lot and you got to balance that and you got to learn to kind of lay back at the cut and, you know, wait for an opportune time. 
you know, when you look at it through that lens, you know, there are people that are strong starters, right? And I, I see these people who are constantly starting, constantly starting some crap, most of which I don't care about, right? Like it may be some framework that won't be on my radar for where I'm at for a very long time. And that's not hubris talking. That's literally like, I don't have a use for that right now. I'm not going to go look for a use for it unless it gets some traction. And I also don't think they have the staying power. Like it's like that in the software development project too. Then you have these people who are just nose to the grindstone. Man, you tell them to do something and they're going to do it till it gets done. And they'll surprise you. Like they will surprise you and they are creative people and they should not be overlooked. They're very necessary people. You need those people. And then you have people who are really strong finishers who, you know, man, when you get to a certain point and you have all these strong starters chasing the shiny things and you got all these people in the middle who are really good workers who can kind of beat that in submission, then you get into the performance problems. And then you get into all the myriad of things that it takes to productionize a system or maintain it or keep it alive forever or extend it, right? After all this oral tradition and people coming in and out of projects, like those people are the people that are like crazy right like those are the people that can really figure out the most obscure stuff and they've probably been sitting around and you haven't been utilizing like you have to have all those people For sure. none of those people require a software development degree they require personalities they require how they work with each other and they require uh you know a platform to do that and they require an objective and we can never lose sight of that objective Absolutely. And I think you, you really hit it on the head when you, you know, you're talking about like the sort of the, the division between like the starters and like the opinionated guys and then the, the working class like software engineer that just is like, let me get this done. I've got this deadline. And they're very focused on like objectives and stuff. And of course, I'm not saying that like only those two types exist. Everybody is like a blend of those things. Um, yeah, I and they change over their career too. Absolutely. Yeah. I definitely have like suffered in the past of being like the hard start type of guy where I'm like, oh man, this new thing's awesome. I mean, but look at what I did that. with generators. Yeah. yeah. And exactly. sometimes you it can work that. out really well and sometimes it doesn't, you know, uh, like, hey, let's rewrite the, let's rewrite our backbone app in AngularJS. And then six months later, like, oh fuck, now we got to rewrite it in Angular 2. Uh, but our, you know, the funny thing is our backbone JS app was working just fine. Um, yep. But that's, I think that's why I got really passionate about it is because I look out there and I, I'm like, when you talk about the differences between them, there's you got the type A's and the type B's. You got the guys that are like really opinionated and trying to like be awesome. And there's nothing against that, but like they're the vocal ones. They're the ones that like go home for the day and are like, man, I just want to talk about software. And so they get on YouTube and they say a bunch of shit. And that's the people who like the kids that are trying to learn what it means to do software stuff, they're going to find that guy, not the guy that's like, man, I'm done writing this, you know document db integration like i'm gonna go hang out with my family or play some guitar or something like that guy is out doing other shit after work and he's not out there being like hey actually software engineering is like this instead um and so like the thing is the the type a's they're really egotistical and the type b's they're like they're more focused they might be egotistical but just in different ways and so i guess where my niche is going to be is like looking at it as an art form and like as a working vocation rather than some like elitist you know science but also being passionate enough about it to still be like, hey, guys, this is not an elitist science. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. And you know, there's things you, there's, you're passionate about over time, too. I mean, like some, you know, we all have to also accept. And I mean, I welcome it. Like, you know, I have projects where I, mean, I am strictly turning wrenches. And, you know, that's kind of nice every now and then. And then I have projects where ton of visibility and a lot of stress, right? And, you know, a lot of... Um, you know, kind of just kind of trying to 
get things moving together, right? Where, you know, I love that too, but you got to have, you know, it takes all these things. It takes all these things throughout your career. And it takes, it doesn't take all these things at once, right? You don't have to feel the same way about or work the same way on each project that uh, comes along your way. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know, like it's, uh, you can't just throw new developers in situations and expect them to produce something like they, I don't think you really have to mentor them either. I think it's just, it's just exposure, you know, working with people like solving those problems. Right. And, and yeah, I think, then I think, yeah, back, like I said before, I I think we're all kind of the new, you know, plumber, this, this is a vocation. Like, you know, that's, that's what you're really talking about. Right. You know, there's, there's the art, like the the, the software engineering and the computer science part of it. Right. But then there's like, you know, there's the the craft and, and the you know the, the part of it that gets the sausage made and that's not it's not sometimes it's not glamorous right um but it's you know has been it, it's been good to me and i still love it so you know it's all good absolutely i know you probably are about ready to jump off so uh, let me uh, you mentioned something there the mentorship thing and and so this is an idea that i've had recently and, and i've been i just want to throw it out there and see what you think about it um would you what do you think about okay so let's take some kid right and he's he's gonna become he or she is gonna become a software engineer and when i say software engineering i really think like the more artsy side of it where it's like you know the word engineering there i think is is kind of a pseudonym or or whatever like it's a it's misleading in that like i think software engineering is engineering in such that it it takes scientific principles in the micro rather than the macro like you know uh if you do, if you write some JavaScript functions long enough and you just like pay attention, you will start to figure out things that you don't like, start to things figure out things that you do like, and you'll start to adapt those patterns. And that's where the engineering part of it comes in to me. Um, but I think, you know, if you talk about some kid that is going to end up being a software engineer and working for companies, is it really the best use of society as a whole's time and money and energy to have this person finish out high school with still no knowledge and mentorship about how software stuff really works. Um, or, you know, let's expect them to essentially have a, a full-time job on the side where they're learning how to program and stuff. Like if, if that's not their ultimate hobby, you know, and yeah, I feel like every day, every, every day I get over on people, I, 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 I'm floored that every day I still am and I enjoy it. Right. I am floored every day that people pay me to do this because I feel like, I'm providing a service to them. Like, again, like I don't want to call plumber or electrician, but I mean, I, I'm, I feel like I know these things. I have this concentration of knowledge and yeah, they come to us for this complicated stuff. They have to get built because it serves a business need, right? You're kind of seeing this in the medical industry already, but like I'm floored that there's still like an industry of like people like me because I feel like, you know, to your point, I feel like eventually everybody is going to code a little bit to do their jobs. Doctors already do. Like doctors are writing R and they're doing MATLAB and stuff like that. It's just, it's expected now that like, if you're going to be doing that kind of work, you're going to have to apply some business intelligence to it. And the best way to do that is through some code. They probably don't even think about it like that. Like I'm like, okay, when is this realtor? When is this kid who wants to be a realtor just going to be like, you know, I'm going to beat these other realtors. Like I'm going to write a little piece of software here to kind of see if I can put some, some, uh, you know, some machine learning around transactions and maybe forecast a little bit. 
Like I, to me, I, I think eventually, I hope our industry, I, all this is to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be shot for this. I kind of feel like our industry needs to go away because they're hiring us to do things in a departmental cost center way when eventually everybody needs to have this in their thing to be competitive. Yeah. And I think also one of the weaknesses of the web has been it's, I think we're going to reach a point maybe here in the next five, 10 years, and I could be wrong, but we'll reach a point where like the web, like the front end portion of it and everything kind of becomes standardized and people give less of a shit about like, you know, uh, how something looks and how, what makes it brand divisible and like, yep. does it do its job? Um, but my point is, uh, it, you know, instead of taking this kid and like not teaching them anything while they, you know, are focused on their football in high school or whatever, and then they go to college for four years and it takes them a year to figure out what they're going to do. And then they take some computer science courses and they learn all this crazy Boolean logic nonsense. And then they go make web apps for forever. You know what I mean? Like, is that really the best use of their time? Or should we start finding these kids at 16? Like these companies would be better off taking a kid that's 16, mentoring them in the summer, giving them a laptop, especially when you talk about kids that don't have access to hardware and like don't, their parents yep. don't have money. Like give well, them a fucking we're laptop. We're seeing that now. Yeah. We're seeing that now. All these, I mean, let's, you know, you and I both, you know, we, we see people in our respective communities where, you know, COVID hits, you got to go home and study. Well, you know, then they can't because really the only the closest thing they have to that is a phone. They don't even really have internet at their house. I mean, their network connection and their window into the thing that we kind of call the internet is like a phone, right? Like well, even and, and sometimes even that. I mean, back in the day when everybody had smartphones in high school and stuff, I mean, I, I, mean, I didn't have a smartphone until I was 17 and like had just started college. So, I mean, some of these people don't even have that. Yeah, or and, you know, also too, like their libraries are closed for a bit. I mean, that's like where some people get their internet. You know, I mean, yeah, and their libraries yeah, I, like how closed is that? You know, okay, you can go to this website and you can look at like the articles we have access to, and everything else is blocked. Yep, I think I I kind of I kind of see things kind of where you're where you're going. I also don't understand why we still have kids using calculators and writing, proving their work for simple algebra and calculus and geometry classes. I would much rather give a kid a basic, you know, understanding of operators, control flow and, and how to write functions and then prove their work in for that formula in the language of their choice. Like I want to see, I want to see it start to use the complement programming and basic programming, just like you would teach a kid, you know, basic conversational Spanish, you know, and um, to be to the to society's credit as a whole, that stuff does kind of exist. It's just super regional. Like here in Jacksonville, they are not teaching computer science. And like I have looked at the curriculum for some of the stuff they are, and they have the same problem that that my um that my college had, and that's that the people that are teaching they have no passion and they also have no work experience in the field and they don't really know what the fuck they're talking about. Mm. Um whereas like there are some places, you know, especially in in the the higher income areas like uh, New York and, and San Francisco, those places where that is like part of the culture. It's like, hey, we need to teach everybody how to do this stuff. But it's yeah. it hasn't quite hit everywhere yet. And I think that's one of my passions. Like if I could, I would open up like an art center where people could come and they could like play guitar or like learn how to make an application and do some software engineering or like work with drones or cameras or some shit. Like a YMCA for like the modern arts, 3D printing and shit. And like has some sort of program to help get them hardware and stuff locally. Because I know for a fact that Jacksonville is one of the places that's really struggling when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. I think, I think if you want to teach somebody how to program, you almost have to give them a problem to solve. And it doesn't click until they 
for well for, for somebody like me i don't care about the theory but i don't care about the execution really at first i do eventually but like for me i i want to have a problem to solve and i want to i want to i want to get i want to get satisfaction and love that way like i want to solve that problem with you know what i'm working on i mean that's kind of where i'm at and i think the quicker we can make people's light bulbs in their minds go on with the satisfaction you get from doing that. It's, it's, it's just like, it's, it's, it's as satisfying as building something out of Legos that first time or third, fourth time, you know, like to me, that's where you kind of get the hooks into somebody. For sure. And I can say for a fact that if, uh, if I had focused on that for four years or had started at 16, focused on that kind of thing, rather than trying to, you know, learn computer science bit by bit through college, it would have been a fantastically improved usage of my time. Yep. And I don't think, I think the wrong thing to look at, like the objective should not be, Hey, let's make a startup as soon as possible. Like right. that's not it. And that's not for everybody in, in the end. I mean, entrepreneurship is very difficult. Yeah. Well, hey, I think my headphones are getting ready to die here, actually. Yeah, no worries, man. I really appreciate you jumping on with me. I think like this is exactly, you know, what I was hoping to get out of doing a podcast was, you know, this sort of dynamic, this sort of conversational flow. So uh Yeah. You know, well, you know, I love talking to you. I mean, it was it was great to catch up. I, let's let's catch up about some other personal things, you know, in a in a few days too. I mean, I uh you know. I miss working with you. I loved working with you. I, you know, I, I like you personally, obviously. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really, I really like a lot of the stuff you're talking about and kind of where you're going and, and, you know, you're coming up in the world and getting a family together. Man, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, for sure. I have no, you know, for the most part, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And I, you know, I, I know that I'm trying to temper a lot of my opinions with the reality that my experiences have sort of uh, forced me into a certain uh, ballpark, but you know, I just, I just want to take it one step at a time and, you know, see where, where it happens or where it gets to. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. I like it. Cool. All right, man. Thanks again. Hey, take, thank you. And uh, have a good night, man. All right, folks, that wraps it up for the first episode of the virtual world. We had some trouble with audio, but I did my best to clean it up in post-production. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. Hopefully I'll be able to release episodes of the podcast about once a week. Coming up soon, I will be interviewing an acquaintance who I know to be a talented developer, someone whose opinions may differ very largely from my own. I'm looking forward to being able to potentially learn something and grow from that conversation. If you are interested in VR, please make sure to stay tuned for another upcoming episode where I will be interviewing an indie VR developer and talking with him about his experiences. Please feel free to email me about anything. You can hit me at ty at tytr.dev. That's ty at tytr.dev. This is Ty signing off. Thanks.